this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 4th, 2019. Coming up, we hear about the science, pseudoscience, and history of paternity testing. Begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A Democrat-led spending panel in the U.S. House of Representatives has dropped a provision that banned embryo editing with the intention of creating a baby. The ban was first added to the 2016 funding bill. It barred the Food and Drug Administration, that's the FDA, from considering any clinical trial application in which, quote, a human embryo is intentionally created or modified to include a heritable genetic modification. The wording is key here, and I'll come back to it. Some scientific advocacy groups disliked the FDA language because it means Congress made the decision, not science and regulatory experts. The draft bill is still moving through the legislative process, however, and Republicans will likely push to restore that language. There's a different rider that bars the National Institutes of Health from funding human germline editing. That's the genetic modification of sperm, eggs, or embryos, but that work is still permissible with private funding. However, this rider specifically bans germline editing to create a baby, and the germline editing is the procedure that was used last year in China to insert new genetic material into an embryo. The reason to drop the provision is that it would free the FDA to consider allowing a less controversial approach that combines genetic material from a mother, a father, and a third egg donor, and that procedure would prevent an embryo from inheriting a mother's mitochondrial disease. This so-called three-parent embryo treatment is being tested in clinical trials in the United Kingdom, but it's not possible in this country given the current wording of the bill. This story was reported last week in the journal Science. Locally, you can join the Inland Ocean Coalition on their March for the Ocean at the Boulder Farmers Market this Saturday, June 8th. Their table is staffed from 8 8 a.m. to 12 noon, and there you can find information on the coalition and their goals. Speakers and the march itself take place from 12 to 2 p.m. For more information, you can visit their website at inlandoceancoalition.com. That's all one word, Inland Ocean Coalition. Also in Boulder, next Monday, June 11th, the CU Museum of Natural History and the CU Facilities Management Service will be hosting their annual Spring Color Tree Walk, led by Facilities Operations Arborists. Meet at the CU Museum of Natural History on the Boulder campus at 5 p.m. for this entertaining and instructive tour. This is a great way to learn about both native and non-native trees on the campus, as well as some of the history of the Boulder campus. My bones are tired, Daddy. I don't get enough sleep. Don't eat as good as I could. 
Father's Day is coming up later this month, so it seems like a good time to introduce some of the science around paternity determination. For most of human history, paternity was uncertain, while motherhood most definitely was not. But in the 1920s, new scientific advances promised to solve the mystery of paternity. The stakes were high. Fatherhood confers not only patrimony and legitimacy, but also a name, nationality, and identity. We talk with author Nara Milinich this morning about the new science of paternity and some of the complexities surrounding the issue. Good morning, Nara. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much. So one of the interesting things to about your book to me was the interdigitation between science and society, which is always important. You know, as a scientist, I've had to write grants. I had to convince people to give me money to do science. But we kind of forget that. We focus on the overlay of science. And so I think that's a really cool thing about your book, that it continually comes out. And maybe a good way to start focusing on that is for you to tell the Charlie Chaplin story, because he was involved in a really famous or infamous paternity suit. Right, the Charlie Chaplin story. So the Charlie Chaplin story is probably the most famous uh, celebrity paternity scandal of the 20th century. We may associate or think of paternity scandals involving celebrities um, as something new um, and modern, but in fact, um, these kinds of scandals have been with us for the better part of a century. Um, and the most famous one involved um, Charlie Chaplin, who in the 1940s, as the world was at war, um, was accused, brought to, brought to court um, by a young woman who um, had worked with him, his protege. Um, and this young woman um, uh, accused him of being the father of her child. Um, so as you might imagine, this was a, um, a great scandal and a suit that was, for several years, as it wended its way through the courts, um, avidly followed by uh, the press, both in the United States as well as in the rest of the world. Um, so at some point, the, uh, the um, suit is winding down, and several doctors come in and present a new scientific test that they have performed on um, Chaplin, the putative father, um, the mother, the young protege, and uh, the woman's uh, adorable red-haired uh, baby. Um, and this blood test is based on uh, the science of um, uh, blood group heredity, which is at this time um, becoming increasingly familiar in U.S. courts. Um, and lo and behold, the results show uh, that Charlie Chaplin cannot be the father of the adorable red-haired baby. Um, blood group um, tests have showed that he is of a, a blood type that is incompatible with that of the mother and the child. The jury disappears and goes into its deliberations, and it comes back after several days and finds Chaplin to be the father of the child. Um, and this, too, causes great consternation on the part of the press and the public. How could a jury have found Chaplin to be the father when, in fact, biologically he's incompatible with um, this mother and child? Um, and that, that mystery, that uh, conundrum, is really at the heart of my book. Um, uh, it's about the tension between social and legal definitions of paternity um, versus biological ones. In the case of um, Chaplin's suit, um, many scientists criticize the uh, decision. Uh, they say that you know jurors, jurors are um, you know uneducated; they don't understand the science. 
um, or alternatively, the law is just very conservative and it's not good at um, uh, adapting to um, new scientific um, truths. Um, but in fact, what seems to be happening here is that the jurors are defining paternity in a way that is distinct from uh, the scientists. So one of the claims that's made on the part of the young woman's attorney is that Chaplin is a notorious cad. He's, of course, British. He's a foreigner. Um, he's suspected of communist tendencies. He's a notorious leftist. Um, and he also is known for his penchant for um, very young women. Um, so he has a whole series of affairs with, with much, much younger women. Um, and so at some point, uh, the lawyer gets up and says, you know, you ladies and gentlemen of the jury um, can put an end to this, um, you know, this, this scandalous behavior on the part of this exploitive cad and find him to be the father. And that's exactly what they do. In essence, they find him to be the father, um, not based on his biological relationship with the with the red-haired baby, but rather based on his social and romantic relationship with the mother. That's what makes him the father. Right, um, right. So, and the, the influence mm-hmm. of social mores in determining paternity was so interesting to me, rather than focusing just on the the narrow scientific definition. And then, as you point out later in the book, like almost 100 years later in France, the French outlawed, made illegal, actually, the application of paternity testing um, without a court order. That's exactly right. So um, kind of the, uh, one classic example when I, when I say that paternity is a social and not, not exclusively a biological phenomenon, you know, we can look to the ways that it's been defined differently in different societies over time. Um, and one great example of that is the Napoleonic Code in France in the early 19th century, um, which outlaws um, the investigation of paternity. Um, and the reason to outlaw the investigation of, of paternity um, is because it's scandalous, uh, right? We don't want to hear from about scandalous um, extramarital um, uh, sexual affairs in a public court of law, so it's scandalous. Um, it is potentially um, disruptive to patrimony that, you know, an illegitimate child can walk in the door of the courtroom and challenge the patrimony of a um, upstanding man and his family. Um, and then finally, the, the reason to prohibit these suits is because paternity is unknowable. So this is a discourse that is very common among um, jurists in, in the 19th century. Um, they say things like, a paternity is as mysterious as the source of the Nile. There's no scientific <laughs> proof, and therefore um, there's no sense in um, investigating it legally. But in fact, by prohibiting um, the investigation of paternity, the court actually makes uh, paternity unknowable, right? Um, You can't know who the father is if you um, don't allow witnesses to come forward and uh, lawyers to present arguments in a court of law. So in essence, the the Napoleonic Code in France brings into being uh, the unknowability of of paternity. It uses that as the rationale for outlawing outlawing, uh, paternity investigation. Um, But in fact, paternal unknowability is the result of this legal reform. So that's one example of how paternity is is very much a social phenomenon defined by law and social mores. And so then in the early part of the 20th century, the 1920s, this blood group testing was first introduced. Both scientists 
And the legal profession probably got really excited about this newfound ability. And we we should mention at this point that, um, especially for the listeners that aren't familiar with blood group testing, although most of us know our blood group or at least are familiar with the term, the testing doesn't identify a father. It rather excludes the possibility that someone can be the father. And that's because each one of us gets one chromosome from mom and one chromosome from dad. And on one of those chromosomes, as I recall, it's chromosome seven, which is totally unimportant here. Um, But on one of those chromosomes, there is a gene for a molecule that lives on the surface of our red blood cells. And you can get either an A type or a B type or a neutral type. And if you get one A from mom and one A from dad, you're going to have A blood group. You're going to be blood type A. If you get one B from mom and one B from dad, you'll be blood type B. If you get an A from mom and a B from dad or vice versa, you'll be AB, which is unusual in this country. And if you get the neutral um, from both parents, you'll be blood type O. Or if you get A from mom and the neutral from dad, you'll still be blood type A. So if you get... If you are out type A in your blood type, but the supposed father is an A, no, if you're an A and the father is a B, then that man mm-hmm. cannot possibly be your father. So it excludes right. individuals rather than identifies them. So that was the status exactly. of paternity testing for all of the 20th century, or almost all of the 20th century. That's exactly right. And so if you think about a scientific test that can only exclude impossible fathers but never positively identify the father, that method has certain uses, certain social uses, but is um, not very good uh, for other uses, right? Um, right? So in theory, at least, it can exclude someone like Charlie Chaplin, um, whose blood type, um, uh, I believe uh, Chaplin had type O blood, um, and the woman, uh, his protege, had type A blood, and the baby had type B, meaning that he could not be, he was not compatible as the father. Um, so you can exclude impossible fathers, um, but you can't necessarily, or you definitely can't, um, identify, positively identify the father. So in thinking about how this technology is used, um, you know, it, 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 it's functional for certain social purposes, but not others. Um, if a court desires to identify the father of a child in order to establish child support, for example, a blood type test can only ever exclude an impossible father. So it may be not just useless, but indeed, um, uh, you know, it, it, contrary to the court's very purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in trying to deal with that, then people started um, looking at other so-called genetic traits that actually have a lot of different bases like eye color and ear shape and tried to use those, which then, you know, people just got deeper and deeper into the weeds of, you know, what is the genetic basis of paternity? That's exactly right. So um, blood group testing, um, which started to be used really in the 1920s um, in Germany and Austria and then quickly spread um, to other parts of the world, um, to Brazil, interestingly, um, to other parts of Europe, and then slowly to the United States. 
um, had its limits, um, clear limits. And so both scientists as well as judges in different parts of the world and lawyers were sort of always um, after the next thing. What other kinds of somatic traits, um, hereditary traits might be used to fix the father if blood groups, um, you know, have these, these clear limitations? And so um, scientists around the, the, the transatlantic world of Europe, the United States and Latin America, which is really my focus, um, look at a whole series of really peculiar um, somatic traits, um, ranging from dental structures and the ridges on the palate to fingerprints um, in an attempt to find um, traits that are passed on through um, clear, um, fixed, and predictable laws and that can therefore be used to sort of read paternity on the body of a child and a, a putative father. Um, and they're only partially successful um, in that quest, um, but it's a fascinating one uh, nonetheless. Right, right. Well, to our listeners that are just joining us, I'm speaking with author Nara Milanich about her new book, Paternity, The Elusive Quest for the Father. And another thing that's really interesting about the book is that in different societies around the world, well, in the part of the world that you focus on, there are really different applications of these tests. Like you dug into a lot of the history of, um, say, baby swapping in US, the U.S., which was one of the early applications of the blood group testing to exclude fathers, and also um, for determination of welfare. But then in places like Chile and South America, um, there's a lot more application specifically to illegitimacy and the rights of children um, to inherit. That's exactly right. So one of the interesting things um, to me about the science of paternity is the radically different uses of the same, very same techniques and methods and technologies across um, different societies. So again, we get a real sense here of how paternity is very much a social phenomenon. Um, so to take just one example, blood group testing, which we've, we've talked about already, um, blood group tests were used for radically different purposes um, in different parts of the world. Um, they begin in Germany and Austria. Germany and Austria have the highest rates of illegitimate birth uh, of anywhere in Europe at this time. Um, Austria in particular has, has much, much higher rates. And so the problem of um, child support cases clogging the courts is one that flummoxes judges. Um, and so all of a sudden, scientists appear with this, with this test, um, and this seems like such a, a wonderfully expedient um, and objective way to um, dispense with these, you know, he said, messy, he said, she said disputes um, in the case of, um, of child support suits. So in Germany and Austria, high illegitimacy rates, um, the, the, this new method um, is useful for uh, those paternity suits. Um, but then the, the method travels to Brazil, and there it does something very different. Um, there, forensic scientists take up the, the, the method um, in cases of sexual violence. 
So when a man is accused of raping or seducing, which is a crime at the time, seduction, um, of seducing a woman, um, she can bring suit against him. And uh, forensic scientists in Brazil start to use blood group tests um, in order to test whether um, a, the child of a woman is, in fact, um, the biological child of the accused man. So here we see blood group tests being used for very different purposes in, in the case of sexual violence. Um, and finally, yet another example is in the United States. Their um, blood group tests, for a variety of reasons, have a very hard time making it into the courts um, and becoming an established and accepted um, technique um, for the purposes of child support or, um, cases. Um, uh, and that has to do with the structure of, um, of American law and the, the role of science in the courts. Um, but nevertheless, blood group tests find um, another application, and that is in the case of baby swaps. Um, and so in the 1920s, uh, the U.S. is very taken with a series of um, apparent baby swaps in hospitals in Cleveland and Atlanta, and the most famous one is in Chicago in 1930, in which uh, two sets of parents believe that their infants have been swapped in the maternity ward. Um, and so in the U.S., blood group tests come to be used in those cases, um, interestingly. And in a really, um, in order to, mm -hmm. sorry, in a really interesting foreshadowing of our current situation at the southern border in the 1950s, um, blood group testing was extensively applied by immigration services to exclude certain children of Chinese immigrants because there was a great um, prejudice against bringing, allowing Chinese to be brought into the country. That's exactly right. So, uh, Blood group and, and today, of course, DNA testing is 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 quite common in immigration and citizenship proceedings um, because often it is necessary to determine kin relations between individuals in order to determine, for example, whether refugees um, are allowed to reunite with their family um, in the U.S. or whether uh, you know someone can pass their citizenship down to their child. You may want to know if that person is in fact their child. Um, but these the uses of, of, of of course, a much more um, uh, less powerful genetic um, technology, blood group testing, uh, has its origins in the 1950s when immigration officials start using these techniques um, to test um, would-be Chinese migrants who are attempting to come into the U.S. Um, based on their status as sons, usually it's men, uh, sons, some daughters, of uh, Chinese-American citizens. Um, and so it is at a moment of um, concern that, there is, that these, uh, you know, uh, Chinese are invading the country, um, that there are communists, um, imposters hiding in their midst that are going to breach the nation by claiming to be the sons of, um, of Chinese-American citizens. Um, there's this, this intense fear, um, you know, shaped by the whole Cold War um, uh, um, context, but also clearly reflecting longstanding stereotypes um, and discrimination against um, Chinese. 
Um, it's at this moment that the U.S. Uh, government, State Department, and immigration authorities start using blood group tests to try to exclude, um, literally, right, um, exclude um, uh, both in immigration law and in the blood group test um, these um, Chinese-American sons. Right. Um, so we can see some, some interesting parallels with the present, of course. Exactly. And I'm glad that you mentioned DNA testing because I definitely don't want to slight that. Because interestingly, that does allow positive identification of a father. And now I was surprised to learn from your book the extent to which DNA testing is being applied not only in the immigration field, but also in welfare claims. Apparently, the courts are ordering millions and millions of dollars worth of DNA tests to ascertain paternity so that they can track down and bill deadbeat dads for um, child support. That's exactly right. So DNA um, is is definitely a well-established um, technique in um, in child support settings. Interestingly, the uses of um, science and genetic science to uh, you know identify so-called deadbeat dads um, predates uh, DNA, um, and in fact reflects the rate, rising rates of extramarital birth in this country. So in, uh, before DNA, there was a, um, uh, a, a technique that was somewhat more sophisticated than blood group testing called HLA, human leukocyte um, antigen testing, um, which gets pretty sophisticated and, and is certainly not as powerful as DNA, but is quite powerful in identif- positively identifying fathers. Um, and so that technology gets taken up um, by the U.S. government to identify um, fathers and hold them accountable for um, child support. Um, and again, that predates, that use predates DNA, and it really reflects the ri- rising rates of extramarital birth, which tells us something about the relationship between science and society, right. namely and in- that sometimes science gets used because of social demands as opposed to scientific, new, new scientific developments. Exactly. And in a weird turnaround of history, that was the first application of blood group testing in, like you said, Austria, where illegitimacy rates were really high, probably not even, probably higher than they are now in this country. Yeah, I'm not sure about the illegitimacy rates currently in the U.S. now, but they are certainly higher than they were then and are rising, and they, not surprisingly, you know, it varies across different um, different groups. Um, Latin America on that, in that regard is a really interesting right. case. Latin right. America historically has had very high illegitimacy rates in some countries today. Rates of illegitimacy exceed illegitimacy. I'm using this old language, right? Um, so set, right. trying to set aside right. the normative um, baggage that that language has, but uh, um, extramarital birth rates are extremely high in some countries. Um, 70, even 80% of children are born um, out of marriage. And so DNA testing today in Latin America is a, is a big thing. Um, and uh, states have um, pursued different states in Latin America and Central America, for example, um, but also Brazil, um, have pursued avidly so-called responsible paternity um, campaigns in which they make DNA testing um, free and available to women in an attempt to get uh, mothers to identify the fathers of their children um, and make sure that they pay child support. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, Nara. There's so much more interesting history and science in your book, and I will link to it on our website. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
That was author Nara Milanich talking about her new book, Paternity, The Elusive Quest for the Father. Although scientific testing has revealed the biological connection between father and child, social, cultural, and political issues remain. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Jewel. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.